Hi there, folks. Welcome back to another Casey Greats, the show that is telling inspirational stories of people right here in Kansas City. Now, I may be a little bit biased, but I really think this is a special one today. And here's why. And pardon me if I rant a little bit getting going here. We live in an absolutely amazing age where information is right at our fingertips every second of the day. Blah, blah, blah. You've heard that all before. Uh, Unfortunately, just like any great resource, information can and is mishandled and misappropriated by those that have negative agendas. Now, because of this, I've become personally a bit of a hater of internet memes that get emailed or posted on social media sites constantly. I don't have any statistics for it, but my guess is that a very, very low percentage of those things that claim facts have any truth to them at all. And right now, being that we're in an election cycle, social media is the 21st century equivalent of a manure spreader with all the crap that people are creating and sending to their connections. So I guess I'm just a little naive, but I don't honestly understand how people from every position imaginable are willing to promote outright lies because their only filter is whether or not some factoid agrees with or supports their opinion. Who knows how they formed it? Don't think I'm pointing a finger at a certain entity or a political party or any isolated group. It's the supporters of all groups that are guilty of doing this individually and then spreading it. And it doesn't matter if it's a Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Green Party, anti-vaccine mom, Muslims, Christians, etc., etc. It goes on for every group. Every group has had someone at some point take advantage of this availability of information and create misinformation to spread to the masses. So, long story short... I asked today's guest, Stephanie Williams, to be on the show because she's the CEO of our local Goodwill organization. Now, every few months, I see a couple of kind of hateful memes about Goodwill pop up in my inbox or a social media feed. Now, in my gut, I know they aren't based in truth, but frankly, I'm guilty of never diving deeper and figuring out exactly what the real truth is. So, when I saw one of them come by again a few weeks ago, I thought I could rectify the problem and go straight to the source for exactly what is the truth about Goodwill and specifically what they do in our area. And I think you'll really enjoy this one because Stephanie is all about making sure people in our area understand every possible detail she can about what Goodwill does and how they do it. And she clearly understands that nonprofit organizations have a very high standard to meet in today's world because so many people have taken advantage of them in the past. And she's willing to meet that standard by offering a very candid look within her organization. So enough of me ranting. Let's get to it. back for another week of Casey Greats. I'm lucky enough here to be with the leader of an organization that I think gets a bad rap mainly because of the internet and is is kind of misunderstood for what they are. So I get to sit down today with Stephanie Williams who is the local Goodwill organization CEO. Thank you very much for uh, taking time and just curious, how'd you get here? What's your history with Kansas City? Are you a native, or did you end up here from somewhere, or what? I'm a Missouri native, and I've lived in Kansas City, with the exception of a few years in Lawrence, since I was seven. Cool. So, uh, basically, yeah, I, uh, Kansas City is my hometown. Great. So, you've got roots here. I have lots of roots here. Wonderful. Yeah. And my husband's family goes back several generations here, so we're very grounded. Awesome. Well, it, we find a lot of people come back. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and uh, for Lawrence, I assume KU time? Rock Chalk. Excellent. My mom was a, a Jayhawk, so I can appreciate that. Yep. Late That's night's good. coming up next weekend. I'm very excited. <laughs> Everybody's <laughs> excited about it. Should be a good year. It should be a good year. <laughs> Well, Stephanie, the reason that I really thought of you for this show, cruising the internet the other day, and I see one of these silly internet memes that some, I don't know, whatever picture, and it makes all these claims about Goodwill, talking about, you know, who the CEO is and where the money goes. It's not a nonprofit and things like that. 
I'm kind of skeptical of pretty much everything on the internet nowadays, and I just kind of thought it would be a good idea to figure out if, I guess, if any of that is true, which is probably not. So, what what do you guys do, and, you know, how do you... How do you get that message out, I guess, the right message? You know, it's it's hard to get the right message out. We've been working really hard for the last uh, three years, which is the amount of time I've been in the CEO position, um, to to get the the real message of goodwill out. And and we find that challenging. And, and the internet rumor you're referring to comes up two or three times a year, always really? at the most inconvenient times. Um, it gets a heavy, heavy rotation right around Giving Thursday. Mm-hmm. Um, at the end of the year when we're getting our biggest donation week of the year. Um, and, and unfortunately, the people who take the biggest brunt for that rumor are the cashiers in our stores. You're kidding. No. People actually are, give jump them a hassle all, about that? They do. And, and it's, it's really unfortunate. That's not fair. It's not fair. And it's frustrating for us um, because... Uh, you know, we can give them all the talking points in the world, and, and it's just, it's such a, it, it is a sore subject when people think that they're being taken advantage of by a charity, and it should be. We should be outraged when charities aren't uh, living up to the public trust that they have. Um, but uh, that can also be pretty easily managed through research. There's a lot of great opportunities to research every organization on on the planet. <laughs> sure. Um, you know, 501c3s, which this goodwill and I believe every goodwill in the movement are. Okay, so there's number one. It is clearly a nonprofit organization. Clearly a nonprofit okay. organization. Um, we are required to release a lot of documentation every year. And if you go out to our website, you're going to find our 990s through the most current one complete, which was for calendar year 2014. The deadline to file 2015 is next month. <laughs> um, so we will release it when it's ready. So um, and our audit's out by April every year. Absolutely. And my right. salary is in the 990, but for your listeners. Wow, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Um, I, I, my mother taught me it's crass to talk about this stuff, but if the rest of the world can talk about it, I think I have a right to, to respond. Um, my salary is $130,000 a year. I make a $7,000 car allowance because I drive my own car over our territory that's mm-hmm. four hours from one side to the other. And the rest of my compensation is bonus based on performance. And last year that was $57,000. You know, that doesn't, I, I don't know. I don't know a ton about CEO uh, pay, but I know that, you know, from a little bit, that's not out of line with somebody running a large diverse organization I mean we're a 25 million dollar a year organization yeah. that has four million dollars in federal contracts 16 million dollars in in retail business we compete yeah. with for-profit and not-for-profit organizations yeah. for donors and for shoppers um, so you know we are not your traditional social services organization that is just helping people and applying for grants we have different liabilities. We have different risks that have to be managed. Sure. We have different struggles that have to be negotiated. You know, um, if you look at what a, a person in development and marketing makes a nonprofit, they're mostly getting the word out about a cause and throwing fundraisers. Right. My VP of community engagement, who runs my marketing, also has to be able to attract shoppers in a competitive market, attract donors of stuff in a competitive market where um, community perception surveys tell us that donors of stuff don't really care who you are or what you're going to do with it. It's about convenience. So we have a very different uh, arena that we play in. And so the compensation can't just compensation for all the leadership can't just look at the nonprofit market. And of course, there's no way we can compensate at for profit. So we try to be right. responsible and find something in the middle. Wow. Well, I, I'll be honest. I wasn't expecting that kind of disclosure. I, I really appreciate your candor about it because I think that's that kind of openness is what people are looking for whenever they are looking at an organization that you know makes pretty big claim that they're doing good things and. People are just skeptical nowadays, you know, yeah. when there's any type of secrecy or something. So, wow, I, I applaud you for being extremely open about it. And that, it's good to know, right? You know, it just is that 
you know, you guys are unabashedly working hard and mm -hmm. being fair all up and down the chain. <laughs> we, you know? We're working to, to increase wages at the front. That's a huge push for us right now. We've mm -hmm. been uh, down a CFO for the last year. We just started someone this summer, so we haven't gotten to do all the analysis we want to, and we're a little behind in some of those initiatives. That's a hefty job. It is a hefty job, yeah. and it's a hefty job to be able to raise wages and do it without jeopardizing the operation. Sure. So, um, you know, our very first obligation is to continue to provide services. Well, and and the positions to run a $25 million organization, obviously, are not volunteer work. Uh, I mean. Somebody could, but they're going to have to be independently wealthy to do that full time. So, well, that's, that's really cool. Well, I understand Goodwill from a little bit of experience, um, and I didn't know this. In college, our, uh, where I went to school, Goodwill won the contract to do general janitorial services the last couple of years I was there in the dorms. Yes. And we got to see a little bit kind of on the ground mm -hmm. level of mm -hmm. exactly what they're doing. And you know what, like it or not, in this world, there's people with challenges. Mm -hmm. And what we got to see were individuals that had some challenges, that were getting a great opportunity, and were hard work, cheerful, good work. Mm -hmm. And you know, that was really interesting to me. I didn't, I guess I didn't understand at that point what Goodwill did. I thought it was just a place to drop off extra things. So uh, I guess here in Kansas City in our area, uh, what are the big things that you guys are doing? How does how does the organization work, I guess, on a, a big level? Well, it's we, we love these kinds of opportunities to talk about it because it's hard to describe in a 30 or 60 second soundbite. <laughs> um, every Goodwill region is locally governed, so every Goodwill does something a little bit different. Uh, sometimes drastically different and because the, the programs need to be focused on the needs of the community they serve. That could be different from here to Colorado to Washington. Or yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, there's, there's common threads, but mm -hmm. some of them it, are dr just dramatically different from each other. Um, we have uh, four major areas that we work in. Uh, the first one is we do have some of the janitorial contracts that you describe. Uh, it's called. It's part of the Ability One program, which was created under under the Javits Wagner O'Day Act in Congress, a really long time ago. I'm sorry, the year escapes me. <laughs> um, and uh, the government sets aside. They identify opportunities for people with different abilities to um, come into a training program and learn to become competitively employed. So uh, they look at jobs that they think uh, have. The, the right uh, mixture of responsibilities uh, to suit that kind of, of purpose. And they set them aside in this pool called Ability One. Then there are two not-for-profit intermediaries that work between the governmental entity. Our, the two we work with are the GSA and the Department of Defense. Okay. Um, and then we've got the intermediary who negotiates the contracts with us um, helps us make sure that we're taking as much into consideration as possible. Those jobs uh, pay at minimum because of the federal act from a few years ago, mm -hmm. 10 $15 an hour. Uh, at a maximum, based on our current contract, they pay at a, a, a twelve ninety six an hour. Okay. On top of that, we are governed by the Service Contract Act, so we pay an additional stipend of, depending on the contract, roughly about $4.50 an hour to pay for their benefits, and if they have benefits available elsewhere, that money goes into a retirement fund for them. Okay, now, that to me tackles one of the things that, that these, these rumors really get ugly on, I think, and they say, oh, they're, they're taking advantage of individuals with challenges and stuff like that. Uh, to me, that sounds a lot like what similar jobs pay, and I mean, we hear people fighting for $15 an hour, uh, as minimum wage, that sounds like the direction that this is going right off the bat. And the Ability One program is very heavily defined, and so mm -hmm. and 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 they're good jobs, and they're Great. good opportunities for people to learn janitorial skills and and hopefully become competitively employed. Yeah. Uh, it's our our purpose to help 
those individuals learn these skills and move out into a traditional work environment. So they can, you know, there's a track to graduate from the right. program into private employment. Right. That's how. We are That's obligated cool. in that particular program to have at least 75% of the direct labor be defined as disabled for the work. Okay. So um, we love those programs because I, they're a win-win-win. Everybody gets something out of it. The government entity gets something out of it. Our clients get something out of it. And Goodwill gets to continue to grow their mission. Um, now, <clears throat> what you're talking about, the, uh, um, the taking advantage of workers, um, it's, it's not enti- I, can, I can explain where that came from um, because it's not entirely untrue to, to make that conclusion, even though it's not true. Yeah. Um, there is a special Department of Labor certificate that allows not-for-profit organizations to pay sub-minimum wage okay. to workers with different abilities. There are very specific rules around how that should work. There are time trials that have to be done on the work itself and then on the individual workers. Um, the people who are in those jobs should have exhausted every other opportunity to become competitively employed. We are usually talking about the, the small section of people who the barriers are significant. Uh, pretty but great, this pretty is great challenges. Pretty to, great to challenges. Okay. And this is an opportunity for them to uh, achieve some dignity through earning a paycheck. Mm-hmm. But they probably have a guardian or they, and or benefits yeah. from some other source. More than likely, it's <clears> not going to be somebody graduating from a program into private employment. And Correct. Self-care or Correct. things like that. Where some of... Uh, where this, that particular issue gets a really bad rap is one, it was designed with the idea that people should graduate up. Yeah. And in a perfect world, and in some instances, we are able to graduate people up mm-hmm. through that program, but people who in, gravitate towards that program tend to be those who have some kind of barrier standing between them and full-time employment. Yeah. Sometimes you can see that barrier, sometimes you can't. Um, there's a gentleman who worked for us for, I think it was like 12 years, and he just passed away, and he was one of my favorite clients. Um, he worked at our North Oak store, and in one of our, uh, our supported positions, and <clears throat> he used to work in this uh, building, and he would go around and he would help the different departments, uh, and he would earn a, a minimum wage for doing that, because if it's not timed, you have to pay the minimum wage. Mm-hmm. And he would go into the accounting department, and he would count coin, and he would go into the HR department, and he would help stuff envelopes and file. Really cheerful guy. Always enjoyed visiting with him. And I remember shortly after I became CEO, I sat down with one of our program leaders, and I said, you know, it's people like Tim that make outsiders question why they're making less than minimum wage. Because he can do this work, and he's pleasant and he interacts well with others why is Tim in supported employment and they looked at me and they said we moved him into competitive employment once and I said okay what why is why is he back and he had emotional challenges that the the stress of a regular work environment with without a job coach there to support him was more than he was able to navigate and he asked to come back so, you know, you can't always see some of the challenges. Well, it's just such a, a surface look, I'm sure. Yeah. Just yeah. doesn't give you the depth of, of need or challenge of some individuals. Yeah. You know. <laughs> but then you've got others out there that are exploiting the program. You know, I've seen yeah. the news stories, too. Uh, there was one that was on Rock Center in the summer of uh, 2013, I think. Uh, where there was another organization, I'm not going to say, that was uh, uh, employing two people who were visually impaired in a supported work environment. And these people came on to interview, and they were perfectly capable uh, of working in a number of environments at full compensation. Um, But for some reason, that organization decided to direct them into supported employment, and they were making 30 cents an hour on some kind of piece rate thing that they couldn't see what they were doing, so they couldn't do it well, which kept their piece rate down. 
But we all know there are a number of reasonable accommodations in a number of professions that allow people with visual impairments to experience no career delay. And um, Yeah, it, that's a huge moral and social responsibility that you guys take on by being part of this world that it's unfortunate. <laughs> There's, yeah. there's going to be somebody who can take advantage or will take advantage of things like that. It's, right. I mean, not fair on so many levels. Yeah, but it happens. And so we understand why the perception is out there that it's taking advantage of people because there are organizations that are using it in that fashion. Hmm. But if you talk to a lot of the guardians of the people who are in heavily supported employment programs, you're going to find out that it's it's transformative for the the family and the individual. The pride and the dignity. The pride, uh, the dignity, their their socialization skills go up. I mean these uh, they get more they get excited about things. You're talking about a lot of times people with some somewhere on the autism scale Mm -hmm. um, have maybe been fairly non-communicative that once they're in a social work environment on a regular basis um, they'll they'll wave at anybody that walks by, and they'll go home at the end of the day, and they'll talk to their families about how excited they are about what they did that day, and it really does. And and the family recognizes the change that's taking place in their loved one, and it's it's really fun to be a part of those stories, even though competitive employment may not be the ultimate goal for that subset of clients. Neat. Yeah. Well, that, and you guys probably, I'm guessing. In those programs, you interact with the families, the guardians, and stuff we like do. that. We do. We have to, yeah. Yeah, to make sure that it's right and continuing and things like that. Yep, we have caseworkers. Interesting. So, the front facing of the organization that most of us see are, like you mentioned, like the North Oak store or something mm-hmm. like that, where we mm-hmm. drop off or go get some fantastic deals on things, <laughs> stuff like that. Um, how many how many people are, are impacted by just those stores, or how many are there in, in our area? Uh, the stores? Yeah. We have 14 stores in okay. our footprint. Now, our footprint is much bigger than just Kansas City Metropolitan. We okay. are 80 counties. Wow, that's a lot. It is a lot. Um, we are in 80 counties, obviously, but um, we've got a lot of opportunity to do better in how we um, operate our retail division and to grow it so that we can provide more programs. Interesting. So we're right now working on a lot of foundational stuff so that we're ready to scale up. And uh, then we'll, we'll move forward with those plans. Cool. So in those 14 locations, how many individuals are generally impacted as far as people who get an opportunity to work and things like that? Well, it's not all of the, it just, it's not all in the stores. Some of it happens okay. here. We've got Behind a vocational scenes, rehab though. program that is officed out of this building. We've got standalone. There's a good work center inside of the North Oak store that operates separate from the supported employment inside the North Oak store. So we're not just one program, we're a multifaceted um, uh, series of programs. And we're developing new ones even now to launch in 2017, 2018. So, um, but we serve about five to 700 people a year. Okay. Not enough, not even close to enough. We've been um, stuck in a rut for a while of doing services in in a very specific way. Um, and that way is for the most part outdated. We've recently in the last three to four years picked up a few youth programs, but the scope of people they serve is still pretty limited and we're looking to increase those. Um, Our Quest Academy is one that we're looking to grow and it's focused on people from 18 to 24 who have dropped out of high school, graduated, not been able to find a job, uh, are languishing in any kind of employment pursuits. Uh, It's a five-week program. The first week, they are in classroom uh, talking about a lot of soft skills that we all take for granted Mm -hmm. in understanding how to communicate with our our employer, uh, our peers. You know, uh, it's not uncommon for people who've not seen good work behaviors modeled that if someone steals their lunch at at work, they're going to walk out and they're not going to come back or to not come in on time. Um, and you know those kinds of behaviors that make it hard for them to hold a job. So we spend the first week talking about stuff that I imagine most of your listeners take for granted. Yeah. Um, so those those individuals, the challenge might not necessarily be uh, physical or mental disability so much as 
you know, maybe they just haven't Genera- had these models. The impact of generational poverty. Right, yeah. right. So it gives them a chance to get out and build <laughs> yeah. build a little bit more future in that, that 18 to 24. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm guessing that is a big gap area where people kind of flounder. You it know, is. We're out of the system right at 18, cut off. Yep, yep. <laughs> now what do I do? Yep. And you know it's the ba- it's the difference between getting on something, uh, getting on a trajectory that is going to set them up for success, or just you know continuing a pattern of poverty. Okay. So um, so they come into Quest Academy after the first week. We hook them up with an internship, preferably in some kind of work area that's interested them. Um, they intern for four weeks, four days a week. Uh, there's a small stipend, but they aren't paid. Mm-hmm. And then the fifth day of each week, they come back into a classroom setting. They talk about the challenges, what worked, what didn't work, and they break it down. And they reset themselves for the next week. Interesting. At the end of that five-week program, they graduate. We actually have a ceremony celebrating their success. And the, the outcomes from that have been really solid. We've put almost 40 people through that program, and we've got a 90% success rate of people taking either full-time employment part-time employment plus some kind of vocational training or schooling or full-time schooling. Interesting. That that's I had no idea. Yeah. <laughs> that's how long has that program been going now? It's in its fourth year. Okay. So, it was just rebranded. Uh, it was something we developed through a cooperative with a grant and then when the cooperative went away, we decided to fully fund mm-hmm. from uh, from our own resources, so we rebranded it as Quest Academy. And you guys run that right here at the downtown location? We do. Obviously, okay. you know, they're only here a total of four, nine days during that mm-hmm. five weeks because they're out working. Um, a few of those folks end up working in some of our administrative or retail mm-hmm. locations, but that's by choice. We don't, we don't say you have to be right. through a Goodwill uh, internship, but if they say, hey, I'm interested in HR, um, our HR department almost always has someone coming through rotation from Quest because there's someone who's going, I'm either interested in office work or I'm interested in human resources. Same with accounting. We see a lot of interest in that. Hmm. That's really cool. I, I had no idea that that was something that Goodwill did. Yeah. I, like a lot of things I'm finding, <laughs> I had no idea that, yeah. that you guys do more than just the stores. Yeah. So. And, and you know, um, we recently... Uh, we were recently speaking with someone who was trying to take our 990, um, and what there's a section in the 990 that says program revenue. Here's the program. Here's the revenue. Here's the expense. And they were saying, well, okay, I'm going to disregard retail. Well, we report retail as a program. Um, and he was like, well, you disregard that because that's your engine. And I said, okay, we'll come back to that statement. And then he went down to where we talked about vocational rehab which on the 990, it encompasses Quest and a lot of other things, but it's, it's another program uh, piece. And they, uh, when they got done with that piece, they said, well, you lost $400,000 in programs, so your retail operations basically only funded $400,000 worth of programs. And I said, you can't say that. I said, retail is identified by the IRS as a program. And he goes, but realistically, it's just generating revenue and I said every every goodwill has we want to make more of our positions in our stores client focused Mm -hmm. that takes better structure we're building new training programs right now to be able to bring our employees on in a better more structured environment once we've got that in place we can put more clients in that space but we've kind of run like a mom and pop for I mean we're a legacy organization Legacy organizations somewhere along the way forget to do some of the more corporate things that are really necessary to be, and that's when I was saying we're doing some foundational work to be able to scale. Well, that's, yeah, is especially here in Kansas City as we learn more and more about business building and startups and entrepreneurship and things like that, um, the challenges of scale, and it's not automatic. Right. What you do with a, a, a ten-person organization to take it to a hundred-person or a thousand-person organization, yeah, it, it changes dramatically. It doesn't just get these things bigger. Right. <laughs> you have to have right. things in place that didn't exist before. 
before. And we didn't do that naturally yeah. through uh, whatever the growth pattern looked like. You know, I've only been here five years, so I don't have a full history. I know when mm -hmm. we were founded. I know how we ended up being Goodwill. Yeah. Uh, you know, I know some of the big stuff, but I don't know, you know, the little decisions that sure. were made. I just know what I inherited. <laughs> um, and so we've got a lot of opportunity to go back and build some of that structural stuff. And once we've got that in place and we are ready to scale, that's when we can say, okay, how far can we push the client ratios in our stores to make sure we're getting the maximum community benefit out of them? Um, right now, I'm not happy with the percentage, but it's because right now I also don't know that the environment is the best for people who need that kind of structure. Um, it's not great for employees who don't need that kind of structure. It's okay, uh, but we can do better, and we have to make sure that we're setting people up to succeed. Interesting. Now, I noticed, it's funny you mention that, because I noticed that uh, I occasionally go to the, the North Oak store, mm -hmm. and I noticed you guys did a pretty big redesign and restructure of it. We did. <laughs> I've got to think that doing those things, you have to involve occupational therapy, therapists, and stuff like that to make sure that the design is functional for the individuals working there. With the workstations, the individual workstations and equipment, yeah. yes. Uh, with the actual design of the building, no. Uh, sure. And of course, you were you in there before we remodeled? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, gosh, I wish you'd have gotten to see the back of it. I used to call it the catacombs. <laughs> kind of a mess. Oh, it was bad. There were little little pockets of space. It used to be a venture. Yeah. Okay. When I was a you, kid. You I remember? remember I, yeah, I used to shop there with my mom Absolutely. as a venture, and. Um, you know, uh, we had the donation hallway was like 100 feet long and like 8 feet wide. Things stacked on our So side. we had to move things 100 feet before we could even start to work with them. It was a very inefficient location. We were taking um, products that didn't sell across customer traffic, trying to get to the, the bathrooms. <laughs> um, it was inefficient. It was ugly. It was the scariest, oldest, saddest store you've ever seen. And, you know, we do, uh, we've gotten much better, but even in that space, uh, which was uh, negotiated for the remodel before the, the leadership transition, um, we work really hard with the landlords, and the landlords, for the most part, are really understanding, um, and I would say, I hope, a little more generous with the tenant improvement money for us than they are with some of their other clients. Um, and we, uh, we ended up paying not as much as you would think for that but we also did a lot to make sure that it was more efficient that it was safer for employees you know it's much better lit than it used to be which is obviously a better work <laughs> yeah. environment um, the flooring doesn't require the kind of maintenance that the the vinyl the VCT the I call it very cheap tile it's vinyl something um, <laughs> the old high school tile yes um, that doesn't require the same amount of maintenance so it's cost-effective for us as an organization to cut costs um, so um, while it looks really snazzy, um, and we're really, really proud of it, it's a model we're gonna, we're repeating it right now in Lawrence with a remodel. Um, we just negotiated to repeat it in Blue Springs next year. Uh, while we're really proud of it, it was done with a lot of intention for both work environment and for cost effectiveness. Wow, it, it seems to me like your day-to-day -day challenge of balancing doing the good versus the business end of things. It's got to be a tough struggle. Because like it or not, it's going to cost. Yeah. I mean, just, yeah. I mean we, we picked up the difference. Free. Yeah. You know? Um, you know, the. I, I wish we would stop using the phrase not-for-profit. Yeah. Um, because it's misleading. Yeah. I think there's a lot of people who believe if you're not-for-profit, then I don't want to see a bottom line. Right. It better be zero at the yeah. end of the year. And but how are you going to sustain? You, you can't grow that. and you can't sustain with that. But there's a lot of people that don't understand that. So if we want to invest in building new programs, um, we have to make a profit that can go into, and this is one of my long-term initiatives for the organization, I want to build an endowment that is there to work as a program incubator. But in order to build that endowment, I've got to build profit. Um, in order to take care of, you know, the, there are air conditionings on this facility that are older than me. And for those of you at home that can't see so me, I'm in my mid-40s. Yes. 
there there are units on the roof that were built in 1971. Oh boy. <laughs> um, we are talking the average useful life for those units is uh, 12 to 18 <laughs> years, depending who you talk to. Um, so uh, we've we. When we've had leaner times, we've done a lot of penny-wise, pound-foolish things. Yeah. Um, and in order to invest in assets, whether it's structurally, whether it's something, we, we buy vans to transport some of our clients to work sites or to interviews. Um, that isn't something that gets to go to the bottom line except through depreciation. So we have to, if we, all we wanted to do next year was buy a van and we had to operate on the zero uh, zero profit principle. We'd still have to have thirty thousand yeah. dollars in the bottom line this year, so next year I could go out and buy be, a van. Right, you got to be above that line. You've got to be above that line. <laughs> so um, you know, we we uh, we do we have been uh, the last three years posting a profit. Um, that money is starting to also build a reserve, because you know if God forbid a tornado wiped out our Manhattan store. You know, we would need we would have insurance that would cover part of that, but we would sure like to one with the profit that helps generate the revenue for the programs. We'd need to be able to supplement that while that store was being rebuilt. Well, yeah, if that goes away, the the individuals being served. Yeah. What What are you gonna do? Uh, yeah, and the the um, we would really like to be able to at least partially pay the employees who would be displaced. Or until they can find other employment, um, you know, we don't expect them to. We can't pay them for a year while we rebuild. We can't rebuild probably fat. But you know, there's things that happen that you want to be able to take care of people. So, and we're trying to get to a place where we do pay more, and we have better benefits. And in order to be able to do that, we have to prove this year that we cannot spend that money so that next year we can say, instead of paying 80% in medical care, uh, medical insurance premiums for our staff, we want to do 85. Yeah. And we proved this year that we, we can be that efficient. Um, it's the conservative approach, but it's, I'm a CPA by trade, so I tend <laughs> yeah. to approach everything we do here as let's prove it before we do something we can't take back. Yeah. Well. It in general, I would think a, a charitable organization, the risk aversion should be a little bit higher than just uh, a typical for-profit. Because yes, you're not zero at the bottom line. You've got to make that profit. But that's not going back to the shareholders or to it's somebody's not. pocket or, or year-end it's going <laughs> into the It's going into the strength of this organization, right. exactly. whether it's building a reserve fund or whether it's building the opportunity to invest in replacing assets or gaining new assets for new programs. So you can operate going forward? Yeah. I, you know, and so um, that's something I think that gets misunderstood a lot about just nonprofits in yeah. general. Um, and then I think one of the things that uh, we've come to realize, as we've gotten better at telling our mission story, um, one of the things I like to point out to people is that the success stories that Goodwill has, they're not our success stories. They're the success stories of our clients. You know, uh, we give them tools, we give them support, sometimes, you know, through training, sometimes through emotional support. But they've got to want to and make good on those tools and that training. You can't force someone into No, you can't make some, someone be successful. <laughs> so the stories that we get to celebrate, um, they're not even ours. Uh, and we don't want to take credit for them. We want people to recognize that, that we contribute to them, but we don't want to take credit for those. Neat. Well, you guys probably, uh, obviously... As individuals here in town, we can get involved by the the typical stuff, right? By giving and things like that. Um, and you probably have some pretty good partners here in town. Um, but what what does Kansas City still need to help organizations, not just yours, but like yours, build and grow? And you know, how do we support them better? You know. um, I th uh, well, I, first of all, research them. Understand, understand the, what the they do. Understand what you know whether or not they do the most good. Um, you know the the stories. There's once a year. There's a story that comes out about some organization that everybody got on the bandwagon with and thought did amazing things. And it turns out everybody was taking trips to Jamaica and paying for vacation homes. Uh, those stories gut me. They yeah. absolutely gut me um, because the information is available. 
Um, and uh, don't just donate to a cause because it's it's in and it, they claim they're helping a, a, a constituency that you want to support. Um, support an organization because you're passionate about it and it does support a constituency, constituency you're, you're excited about, but then do the research. You know, and it, it, a donation to a not-for-profit is an investment in the community. It's no different than putting your money in the stock market. You would, and you would research a stock. Why would you not research a donation to a not-for-profit? Just because you're not going to get a cash return on it doesn't mean that you shouldn't expect a return on it. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you put it that way. I just, the other day, was listening to uh, a podcast where a a gentleman is a very successful uh, business person and investor. He said, everything I do, I evaluate with one question, investments, relationships, opportunities, et cetera, does it make me richer or poorer that day? And to do that research can help answer that question. Mm-hmm. You know, does it make our community and yep. selves richer or poorer, or that, poorer day. that day through this assistance? Yeah. And that's a, that's a really interesting way to look at it. So yeah, cool. Well, I'm, I'm a little bit uh, at a loss to express how, uh, amazed I am of everything that I've learned. <laughs> you guys do a ton of things, and, and it's it's a big organization. Bigger, I think, than most people realize. Oh, absolutely. Um, can I can I take you in even a different direction for I a minute? I would love it. Yes, please. Um, so we have, a, our mission is, you know, I should say this, uh, community engagement will be unhappy if I don't say it out loud, <laughs> um, to empower people with disadvantages and different abilities to earn and keep employment through individualized programs and services. Very straightforward. Very, and it says a lot. It says a lot. We have um, two unofficial missions. Um, one of them is just, and both of them are actually byproducts of how we fund ourselves. So 80% of our funding comes from our stores, um, which is huge. We definitely would like to diversify, and we're working on that. Yeah, but I don't see that being a bad thing. It's not a bad thing, but... Because you're not as dependent on someone just writing a check. That's correct. And anything that you see Goodwill take on in the future, we're going to get more competitive in grants because we are a not-for-profit, and I think Mm -hmm. raising um, that awareness through the grant uh, process will actually work to raise our profile because we've kind of just been sitting back here doing stuff, and nobody really... We've not been... You know, we've not been tooting our own horn. We've not been very, you know, out there talking about what we do. Um, but, uh, you know, by running those stores um, unofficially, and we don't see it as our mission, but we are really excited that the way we fund ourselves provides value. Absolutely. You know, there are there are people who love the hunt for a bargain, that it's their <laughs> hobby, there are people who um, are love the uh, the resale opportunity. It actually some of our stores support people's households not because they're employees, but because they buy stuff there and sell it online or sell it yeah. somewhere else and turn it for mm-hmm. a profit. So we get to we get to support families through very unique ways, um, and then of course there are families who are very cost conscious for reasons of either being you know thrifty. Or actually, you know, struggling with how much they're making, and we get to help their household run at a better, better quality because they can get good stuff at good prices. So, you know, that's a really awesome thing that that we see as a great side effect of how we yeah. operate. Um, now, our our true second unofficial mission is environmental sustainability. And, you know, we receive over 20 million pounds of stuff a year. That's a lot. That's a lot of stuff. (laughs) That's a a lot of stuff. Correct me if I'm wrong, but not all of it is perfectly usable. Not all of it is perfectly usable. Some people bring you the half and half load, the good, and the just get rid of. Well, you know, the interesting thing is I think... um, and I think our, our, our supply chain guy is going to yell at me after I say this. But, um, you know, we want people to bring us everything they want to get rid of except, you know, real, real trash. Yeah. And, and not even junks. We can turn some junk into gold. Um, but, uh, and, and there are things that we can't accept because of the impact 
of a negative impact to the mission. So for example, televisions. Um, you know, we took them up until fall of 2013 when we could no longer find responsible ways to, to make sure that they uh, were properly recycled. Yeah. Um, we obviously can't throw them out. I do, uh, I'm quite certain there are other thrift stores in the city that do throw them out. Yeah. Uh, but we won't do that. Um, we'll pay to store them until we can find a responsible way to, to, to dispose of them. Well, nowadays you just take the best buy. They'll take care of they it. They don't they anymore. They've stopped? They've stopped I just doing took that. two of them last year. Yeah. We, oh. That's one of the things we would do is let people know you could go to Good Best grief. Buy. So it's getting very challenging uh, right. to, to do that. Um, for us to get rid of televisions right now, it would cost us $30 a tube. That's a big expense. Plus, some of those tube televisions weigh 200 and 300 pounds. Yeah. So you've got increased risk to the associates. Increased work comp expenses, you know, and then we have to transport them away from the store in order to store them until we can find a way Jeez. to responsibly get rid of them. So there's a reason we stopped taking televisions. Yeah. It wasn't to be mean, but that really does take <laughs> money out of our ability to serve Kansas City if yeah. we don't want to just chuck them in a dumpster and hope we don't get caught. Um, and But what we're really driving towards at this point is zero waste. Um, we If your stuff doesn't sell... Okay, so... Let me tell you a quick story about what happens to your donation. I don't know how long the podcast is, but I can as tell you. As long as we want it to be. That's a great thing. Um, so uh, when, when someone brings something in, it goes through an initial sort into categories. And then it goes into production. And production, um, we go through it looking for three stages of stuff. The super unusual um, you know, the the 1980s 18 lunchbox or something uh -huh. like that that's going to sell that, you know, we would mark that in a store as just a metal lunchbox $3.99. I'm kind of making that up. I don't know what we, we might not even produce it, <laughs> to be real honest. Um, we might send it for salvage, but, um, but if it's a, a legitimate 1980s, you know, uh, nostalgia relic, yeah. um, it, it could probably sell for... $25 on eBay. Absolutely. So we're going to send that to eBay because our our number one obligation is maximize the value of the donation yeah. when it comes to the retail cycle. Maximize the value of the donation so we can serve the most clients. Absolutely. So if you can 10, 10x those yeah. individual items, great. Exactly. You know, do we miss some? Sure. That's why you still want to come to the store because, <laughs> you know, it's a human process. There's cool stuff. I read in an article um, when our outlet opened in 2012 uh, that somebody bought an Hermes scarf at the outlet, which means they probably paid like 10 cents for it. And those are kind of expensive. I think they're over a thousand bucks. So good grief. Um, and I also know at the outlet once we sold a brand new pair of UGG boots, tags still on them, and they sold by the pound. <laughs> so um, it's a human process. We do right. miss some things. Don't think that all the great stuff makes it to, to yeah. e-commerce. Um, I don't want to give anybody that impression. Um, so we, we do look for those those rare things that are going to sell better at a higher volume. Also, all of our jewelry goes to e-com because the, yeah. the loss prevention risk is decreased significantly there. Sure. Um, we don't have the highest concentration of staff in our stores because we're trying to keep operation costs down. Um, you don't want to make it a target. We don't want to make it a target, exactly. Again, going back to wanting to maximize that value that the donors entrusted us with. Um, then we look for the stuff that is going to sell in the store, has the best chance to sell in the store. So it's not stained, broken, ripped, missing pieces. Um, it's not a 1970s leisure suit, unless it's between September 1st and October 31st, <laughs> and then we will actually produce it. Um, you know, our biggest day of the year, our single biggest day of the year is the Saturday before Halloween. <laughs> um, and uh, one, part of that's because of the fall closet turnover. Yeah. But... Part of that's because we have cool stuff for, for costumes. Great. Um, and so uh, then it gets tagged and it gets hung and it gets ready to go out to the floor. And then if it is broken, missing pieces, in some way damaged or just so out of date that nobody's going to buy it, it ends up in what we call um, salvage. All of our salvage goes to our facility at 435, just off of 435 of Front Street, which is our retail operations center. 
Um, so all of our stores funnel into this one place. Um, the uh, stuff that goes out to the floor gets four weeks to sell. If it doesn't sell within four weeks, it gets pulled. Oh, so it's not an indefinite thing. It's not, no, because the stores would just keep, not everything keep growing, will not sell. The store yeah. would get unshoppable because there'd be too much product. Oh, okay. Um, also, the one thing about Goodwill shoppers, they, they are actually not very high maintenance shoppers and we appreciate them for that, um, but they do expect it to be fresh yeah. and they do expect it well, to be quality. A lot of those individuals are coming back. Daily. Yeah. Uh, weekly. We, we have lots of daily and weekly regulars. So fresh is critical for them. If they see something, you know, if we got some weird pair of rainbow platform shoes sitting out and they see them sitting there too long, they're going to start to question the freshness of the product in the store and we will lose those shoppers. Okay. So um, if it doesn't sell within four weeks, it ends up in salvage again and ends up back over at the retail operations center with the stuff that's broken and stuff. That stuff gets put into these big blue tables on wheels. Big blue tables. Do you, have you been by here? Uh, no, you I haven't seen it. You need to go. Sounds um, interesting. It is fascinating. It is a three ring circus. Um, <laughs> within 18 hours of arriving at that facility, that product will have gone across the sales floor and already moved on to a salvage pick line. So the stuff gets dumped, literally dumped, into these big blue tables. Every 30 minutes, there's a table rotation. So part of the product comes off the floor, new product goes on. At light times of the year, uh, it takes four hours for the product on the floor to turn over. At peak times of the year, it takes two. Good grief. And um, then it goes to a pick line. It gets sorted into the different salvage lines for which we have customers. Obvious ones are cloth. Textile uh, salvage sure. is a huge market for us. Um, it goes into uh, metals, um, papers, cardboards, um, hard plastics, glass. You know, so we've got a, a pick line that goes through and sorts it for what we can sell or give away. So in the in those cases, one item at a time, not really not worth the drive to the recycle center. But when you guys are taking them in bulk, mm -hmm. you know, you can retain recover some value there well or donate to recycle if it's 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 we're just trying to keep it out of the trash stream yeah for two reasons one we want to be net positive for kansas city and if we are not being responsible in what we put into the landfills then we can be helping people get jobs over here but we end up being a net neutral because we're throwing too much stuff more than we can reasonably uh, support into the landfills. That makes us net neutral. As a nonprofit, we feel an obligation to be net positive. Um, so we, we uh, right now we're at over 80% of the product we receive is diverted from landfills and we're driving to zero waste. Uh, and we know we can do it. So right, right now glass, we don't care that we give it to Ripple Glass. Sure. Because we don't have to pay well, to throw they, it away. They have an infrastructure that's designed that can to take it, it yeah. and meet the goal. Yeah. Now, if we could find someone to buy that glass, it would go back to maximizing the value of donation. Right. But we don't have buyers for that glass, and we've searched the market across <laughs> the country thoroughly. Glass is not a high-sale commodity, but we can give it away and keep our trash costs down and keep it out of the landfill. Great, thanks. Yeah. We, um, we keep blankets and towels on hand at all times for a number of partnerships we have set up with animal shelters. Yeah. Um, we start to gather coats at a certain time of year so that homeless shelters can send volunteers over and pick what they would like to, to keep. Realistically, just because it makes it to the retail operations center doesn't mean that it's a bummer. It just means it got passed over. Yeah, missing one button may not sell on the floor. And or, sometimes they're perfectly fine. Or maybe they fine. will, but everything else is fine, and that can go to really making a difference somewhere. I've seen stuff with tags on it in perfect condition make it to salvage. Huh. And, you know, and it, it always cracks me up because I, um, I was doing pulls once in a store myself, and I uh, found this really cute little outfit for a baby girl it was Oshkosh Bagosh still had all the tags on it it was in perfect condition and it was time to pull it because it had aged out nobody found it you know it was just one of those things where you're going the right buyer didn't come by and look at the right spot at the right time it happens yeah. so that's why you can get a, one of many reasons you can get some really interesting finds at the outlet where we sell things by the pound 
Okay. Yeah, and then if it doesn't sell at the outlet, it goes into the salvage stream, and um, some of the coats that we we hold back for homeless shelters are in perfect condition. Interesting. Well, that's, uh, again, more eye-opening, so thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. Well, wow. Um, I've used a ton of your time, and this is, but it's, it's such a cool look into an organization. I think a lot of people have only seen the surface, and that's kind of been the goal. So thank you. That, uh, wow. Well, thank you, Scott, for giving us a chance this to talk so about it. It's so hard to cover all of this in, in a sound bite. Well, and that's, that's kind of been one of the goals with a lot of these is, you know, some of the folks I've talked to get press and mm -hmm. things like that, but in a 300-word uh, article or a two-minute spot on the news, you can't get in depth. So yeah. that's what's so awesome about this. Now, changing directions a little bit, mm -hmm. you personally, you've been around Kansas City or Missouri or, you know, Lawrence, our area for, for your life. I always like to know what somebody's hidden gems are in town, things that they think everybody should know about. Obviously, I think a lot of what you guys are doing falls into that, um, but it can be a store, a bar, a restaurant, a park, what, anything. Just... Um, I like to eat, uh, so they're, they tend to be restaurants. Awesome. Um, and I don't know that this is so much a hidden gem, but I, I'm always amazed how many people have not been to Ponax Mexican Kitchen on Southwest Boulevard. Okay. Uh, you can find me there several days a week. Excellent. Uh, <laughs> I know about it. I can honestly say I've never been there. You've never been I've there. I've driven by a bunch of times and thought, hmm, it looks busy. It's Tex-Mex, so, you know, it's not super authentic, but if you like cheese and sour cream with your me Mexican food, it's... Excellent. Uh, and they, I, they have the best margaritas in town. Love Just it. Saying. Um, there is a restaurant in Weston called Tin Kitchen. If you have not been there, I highly recommend it. And I can't believe I'm going to say this on something where it's going to be repeated in per <laughs> perpetuity. But I'm not a big barbecue fan. That's a, it's a crime that's here. Okay. It's a crime here. I know it is. Um, but there is a place in uh, Weston called Tin Kitchen. And um, we found them on one of those, you know, search things good because we moved to Platte City a couple yeah. years ago yeah. and uh, we were looking for restaurants up that direction and I was able to get a hamburger with pulled pork on top of it that sounds wonderful it's divine <laughs> and there's they have a nice range of sauces to meet just about any palate so um, and they had a really great uh, drink called um, was it the pink derby or the brown derby or something uh, I, I think it was the pink derby um, bourbon and uh, pink grapefruit juice that was actually really good. Curious. Yeah. I have to look into this one. Yeah. And then, of course, you can't go wrong with a trip to Lawrence. Of course not. And an absolutely not hidden gem would be gem would be uh, Allen Fieldhouse. That's one of my favorite places. Always one of the favorites. You yes. get back for games a few times a year. Not as often. I didn't. I I made it to a game last year. I don't think I made it to. a game the year before that one year they did a mini pack uh nice. season ticket where we actually got to go to like six games and that was really cool but they have had too much demand on season tickets to make mini packs yeah, available. it's a tough ticket to get this is a tough certain. ticket to get well so cool well those are great tips and uh let's round it out stephanie where can we find the information that we need to know about goodwill is it uh just on the website? Our website is www.mocangoodwill.org. Okay, um, on great. there you can find places to donate stuff. Okay. Um, you can find out how to donate cash to our programs. Okay. We Just because we take stuff doesn't mean that we have an aversion to cash donations. Um, you can also find the page out there about the rumors. We address them in length and hook you up to different um, resources. And our financials. And our right audited there. financials and our 990s are Up all front. out there as well. Um, and then uh, we have a piece coming out in the Kansas City Star. We have an eight-page insert uh, this coming Saturday, September 24th, and repeating on Sunday, October 2nd. And it's it has a lot of um, information. We share the story of one client in depth. Uh, and we Neat. also talk about just some of the things going on at Goodwill right now. We talk about our environmental sustainability efforts. So, again, one of those platforms where we can be a little more in-depth. 
Very cool. Well, thank you again for so much time and so much detail and so much behind the scenes of what, what Goodwill does, because I think that's something that more people should know about, and hopefully it's something that helps your mission as well. Well, so. thank you, Scott, for the opportunity. We, we, we're glad to share what we do. We're proud Very of cool. what we do. Very cool. Well, have a wonderful day. You too. Well, I think more than any show I've done, that interview really speaks for itself. There's so much information in it and so much good learning about what kind of organization we have working here in our area. So I, I hope you picked up on that. I just want to say an extra special thank you to Stephanie, not only for taking time from her schedule to talk, but for her openness and how much it can help us learn about a great organization in our community and how it operates. As always, if you happen to know someone you think all of Kansas City should know about, please let me know. You can always reach me by emailing me at scott@caseygreats.com, or through Facebook or Twitter by searching for Casey Greats and sending me a message. So thanks again for joining me. I'll see you next time.